you take a break and it's like ah, yeah <clears throat> i remember how to podcast it's just talking into a microphone it's um, going great so far <laughs> so many so many so many damn books hey, welcome welcome one and all to so many damn books i'm christopher i'm drew and we have rosecrans baldwin joining us in the hyperspace of the Zoom Dam Library. We are so glad to have Rosecrans back with us. Um, we last had you on for The Last Kid Left, um, and you're also the author of You Lost Me There and Paris, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down. He's a frequent contributor to GQ and a co-founder of the online zine, The Morning News, and therefore... Responsible for this podcast. In, in yeah. <laughs> in some ways. Um, and he lives in Los Angeles, which makes sense because that's what your book, Everything Now, Lessons from the City State of Los Angeles, is about. You can get that from the title. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. It is my pleasure. It is an honor. It is a treat. It is very nice to be here. I wish we were all getting to toast this crazy drink that Christopher made. There are so many ways to go for a drink inspired by Los Angeles um, because there's just, as you learn in the book and as I, I am born from North of Los Angeles and Santa Clarita. So I know Los Angeles pretty, pretty well. And I was just like, do I make a margarita? Do I make, you know, is there, what should I do? And so I was researching and um, the Savoy cocktail book of 1930 actually has mm. a Los Angeles cocktail in its pages in the same way that there's a Manhattan cocktail a couple pages later because it's in alphabetical order. And the Manhattan cocktail is <laughs> whiskey, vermouth, and bitters. Very simple. The Los Angeles cocktail decides that that's not enough and it needs lemon juice and a teaspoon of powdered sugar and a whole egg. And, wow. and, and when I was telling this to my wife, she was like, oh, yeah, because that's exactly what I think of when I'm in Los Angeles is in the 90 degree heat. I want an entire <laughs> egg broken into my cocktail. And I was like, yes, yes, you do. And it makes this lovely um, yellow cocktail with this foam on top, this froth. And it's actually so I am I love actually eggnog and this is kind of what it tastes like to me although it's not as not nearly as thick and if you like an egg white cocktail it's really not that different it, it it's very smooth um and so that's just what i went with it's um because to me there's this froth of los angeles and there's the froth on the top of this drink and you know it is a weird place it is the type of place that's like yeah i'm gonna put a whole egg into your drink and it's lifestyle it's part of your health <laughs> and you would just be like i guess los angeles sure and uh, and so yeah uh so i'm i'm drinking it right now the los angeles cocktail and um it is like 93 degrees in brooklyn today and uh, there's no air conditioning because that's not going to be good for audio so it's really refreshing well, I'll tell you, as someone who's currently in Southern California and not drinking that cocktail, first of all, <laughs> I kind of feel like I'm in a comedy club and I just heard the most surreal New York, Los Angeles monologue that had something to do with that. <laughs> Maybe not. But Christopher, can we just stay with this for a moment? 
Am I understanding you correctly that the recipe for this Los Angeles cocktail is to take a Manhattan and add an entire egg to it with some powdered sugar? And lemon juice, yes. Give me a break. So I think this was like a New York City bartender who's like, hey, fellas, what are we going to do for Los Angeles? What's that lake out there? I don't know. Geez, I guess it's real sunny. Yeah, let's put it in something that's symbolically sunny. How about an egg yolk? Yeah, that's a good idea. They feel stupid, though. So let's give them something that will satisfy the children of the of the environment. So put in a lot of sugar. But do they have any citrus? I don't know. I guess they do. They got lemon farms, orange farms. No, put some lemon in there. That's a let's call that the Los Angeles and sell it to all the suckers. <laughs> and and here's me like uh, 80 years later looking into the or 90 years later looking into this and being like oh good idea <laughs> but if you say it's delicious i it, believe you that it's delicious and it I, is it is delicious i mean i i have a i have a high uh, tolerance for weird flavor but this does not taste like there's an egg in it i will say that like if i gave this to you you'd be like oh that's a it's silky it's smooth it's it doesn't taste like whiskey it, it tastes like something else even though whiskey is the dominant ingredient if there is one thing that i did during lockdown it was drink alcohol and after a while <laughs> alcohol just starts to taste like alcohol so variety <laughs> in the past two years has been the spice of life <laughs> So what you're saying is you're going to start making the Los Angeles cocktail at home for, for all comers. Ooh, and put a little bit of green dye in there. Make it match the cover of the book. There you go. A fluorescent green uh, Los Angeles cocktail. Beautiful. This was fun, guys. I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> Oh gosh. Uh, so now that I know, have told everyone how to beat the heat and it's with one of these Los Angeles cocktails, let's oh, move boy. on to the other thing we all love to do when it's hot, which is just laze around and read new books. Um, let's talk what'd you buy? Sure. You should go first, Drew. Okay. I have two things. One is a pre-order and then one is um, a UK edition of something that sh just showed up and symbolically it fits. I'm going to show the cover to our friends here on the stream, which is just Ooh. the three of us. The performance by Claire Thomas. Um, I'm working on a new writing project that is uh, a city novel, but also a theater novel because I realized that being out of theater, I can finally start writing about it. It's set in Australia in a theater in the middle of wildfire season, and it's three women sitting down for a performance. But instead of hearing about the show, they're sort of like, it's their thoughts kind of Dalloway style throughout the thing. And so I'm excited to read that for research. And then the other book is a pre-order because we all love pre-orders mm -hmm. uh and it's an it's a city book which is both research for me and also it felt timely for this conversation it's called in the watchful city by s chuyi lu it's coming out from tour.com i think at the end of august or thereabouts um but it's a it's a mosaic novel set in a sort of dystopic sort of utopic city um where everybody is has sort of agreed to like be watched and what sort of what it means to be watched but then this 
mysterious stranger shows up with stories from the outside world. Uh, and I'm really, I'm really excited to read that. Yeah, it sounds good. Rosecrans, how about you? My, what did I buy this week? Um, I bought a book. I bought it called First Responder. It is a memoir, very recently published. I think it was only published uh, a month or two ago by a woman named Jennifer Murphy. Um, and it's a memoir about being an EMT in New York City during the pandemic. So this Whoa. is falling in the genre of really, really recent stuff. Um, and it would appear that the author, she walks us through sort of how, you know, growing up and why she was sort of led to service, uh, including a bunch of traumatic stuff in her past. And then what it's like to sort of be trained as an EMT and then join a volunteer ambulance company, in her case, in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And then what happens when a pandemic hits and you are suddenly, you know, needed more than ever. Um, and so I'm only about halfway through it. And so the pandemic is just starting. Um, so the, I'm not really quite there in terms of like what it was like to be an EMT on the front lines yet, but it's, uh, it's very fast paced. It is a page turner. Uh, she's got a wild story in her private life. The author is a private investigator, but as far as I can tell, that means that rather than being sort of a detective who is stalking out, you know, husbands or wives that are off having affairs, she deals more with people who have online reputations that need repairing or uh, sleuthing out sort of internet crime or financial skullduggery at corporations. Anyway, really interesting and really opening my eyes to all kinds of stuff I don't know. I actually worked when I was a teenager uh, the town I grew up in has the only ambulance company in the United States that's actually run by teenagers. Um, and so I was an EMT at 16 and an ambulance driver at 17. And so Whoa. I have a little bit of this experience in my life. That's a very weird story, which we will, <laughs> I'm totally just going to introduce. It's nothing <laughs> to do with the Los Angeles books and we won't talk about it. Um, but no, it's it's a strange part of my past. I did an ebook for Amazon at one point about it, about what it was like to grow up. Um, in that kind of environment with those kinds of stakes. It was called Nightcrawlers. In any case, uh, this book is called First Responder and it's by Jennifer Murphy and really enjoying it so far. Sounds amazing. Cool. Christopher, Christopher what do you got? Did you buy? Yeah, I am. I'm so excited. I didn't buy this. It got sent to us and I am just, I am. Um, her last book is one of my top 10 favorite novels ever written. And it's Ruth Ozeki wrote, her new novel comes out um, very soon, it's, and it's called The Book of Form and Emptiness. Mm. And I've barely read like a couple sentences on the back, just enough to know that it deals with uh, a younger protagonist, something to do with Christmas ornaments. I don't know. I, I'm really trying <laughs> to keep it really light because I just love her writing and I love what she does. So I'm just, I really want to go in as blind as possible. Um, so I have the title and a couple words that I gleaned from <laughs> skimming the back. Christopher, I am so behind this recommendation because as far as I can tell, you are describing a book about a child in December. And that's all you're giving me. There's just a child somewhere and there's a, and there's a holiday. And Maybe. But it's by Ozeki, uh, which yeah. is uh, terrific. Yeah. I, I'm being sincere. I'm going to go buy this book now because I, I want to see what weirdness happens come Christmas. Yeah. Well, I mean, it might not even be a, it, about Christmas, but I, I latched onto it because I'm very Christmas focused and I saw that <laughs> word on the back. Um, and it's almost 600 pages. It's like a brick, 
which I'm also excited about. I like when an author decides like, it's time for me to really stretch out um, and be as long as I wanna be, which is cool. And then we were having a really fun um, book chat with our patrons over on our Patreon Zoom. We have those every now and again for the folks that give us a dollar or more um, over on patreon.com slash SMDB. And um, I think it's our friend Suzanne who who told me about this um, Australian writer who just won a, an award over there, the Readings Prize, for their short story collection called Smart Ovens for Lonely People by Elizabeth Tan. Great cover, great title, and the first, you know, little capsule summary of a short story is a cat-shaped oven tells a depressed woman she doesn't have to be sorry anymore and i just <laughs> i want to know way more so um i'm really excited to dive into that and i appreciate a really like it took forever to get here because it came from australia and uh and yeah i i, I would have only heard of that because we were having our our patron zoom which was really fun that sounds great i want to read that too <laughs> Awesome. U.S. publishers, take note. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so now, the reason now. for the season. Yes. Everything now. Lessons from the City State of Los Angeles, which is a fantastic title. Rosecrans, um, will, you tell, will you tell folks about the genesis of the book and, and what, it, what a your little deal bit is about with it. this one? Yeah. Yeah, uh, the genesis of the book is I moved to Los Angeles with my partner, Rachel, about six years ago, um, and two things struck me very quickly. Um, one, for no good reason, um, and this, I don't think this is in the book, but I actually felt at home in Los Angeles, and that didn't make any sense. The reason being, I didn't grow up in LA. I'm not from LA. I'm not from California. Born in Chicago, grew up a little bit in Nashville, moved to Connecticut, grew up mostly there, and then lived in various places and various cities, and then sort of wound our way to Southern California. And all of a sudden, you know, like driving around, like it just clicked. Like I just felt a weird uh, link up between whoever I am and what I'm all about, whatever Los Angeles is. and what it represents to me, at least, I guess, as I'm flying around the highways. But two, I was really curious about LA. Christopher, I don't know of your experience as someone who's from LA or the LA, greater LA region would be similar, but as someone coming from outside, I didn't get it at all. Like really like was confused, like driving around. When does one neighborhood stop and when does another one start? Why is it so massive? When does it end? Which is the city and which is the county? And why do, when you're approaching, when you're at a, a, a yellow light and you're turning left and it's the yellow light is turning red, why do three cars go for it, right? Instead of just one, because on the East Coast, you would never try to push three cars through that yellow <laughs> but on the, in LA, like you get, honked the heck out, you know, if you do not go for it. Um, so all kinds of confounding things. And I am being a little bit frivolous, but it really was a sincere, you know, sort of confusion. And so I, being the person that I am, just started reading a ton about it and diving into all I could get my hands on with regards to LA history and LA literature and LA poetry and just 
going far back and going contemporary and wherever I could get things that helped me get a better grasp on this place that I, for whatever reason felt like home. Um, and that's really where it started. I just started kept a diary of like my reading experience and my questions about Los Angeles. Uh, it was never with an intent to write about Los Angeles. You know, there's been a lot of people have written about Los Angeles. <laughs> and a lot of people have done it horribly. <laughs> they're particularly, they're often from the East Coast who arrive and park themselves at a hotel and they look around for a week and they're like, yep, this is Los Angeles. Take it, West <laughs> yeah. Coasters. And then they turn around. Uh, they so order would, Los yeah. Angeles at the bar and that's- <laughs> They're the like, yeah, it's it sucks just like I thought. And then they go <laughs> exactly. It's just like a big egg and a lot of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> over 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 nothing um yeah so but i mean drew i can go further with it but that's that's where the book came from uh genuinely well i guess so it's it's cool to hear that because i am i am mystified by los angeles i always have been but my sister has moved there and absolutely loves it and is thriving there and now i've married into a california family and there are a lot of people in la and i have spent a lot of time there and i I don't know, I feel the appeal of it tangentially, where it's a little bit like, I think I could see how I would like this. Yeah. But I, I would love to hear you say more about the writing process, because I know that some of these pieces started as magazine articles. And so like, did you know you were writing a book or was it just kind of you started writing these pieces and then suddenly, boom. Yeah, no, that in the truth, it's it's a little bit tricky because the truth is it's actually, it's kind of the flip-flop of that. What happened was I started having a conversation with my book editor. So I've worked with the same editor on all of my books, um, Sean McDonald, um, since he was at Riverhead and now at FSG, and now that he has his own imprint at FSG called MCD Books. Uh, and Sean and I started talking and the conversation lasted about a year because I had come up with this silly theory that I was kicking around at parties and kicking the wheels on and testing out that Los Angeles just wasn't another big city like other ones in the United States, whether it is Seattle or Houston or Miami or New York or Chicago, that Los Angeles was different. And I had this notion based on an article that I'd seen in Forbes magazine. And the article in Forbes magazine, which was the inspiration, um, suggested that the idea of a city state could be modernized and it could include more places than, for example, Singapore, which is pretty much, Singapore is the only real sort of traditional city-state functioning right now, perhaps Monaco, perhaps Vatican City. But just really quickly for the listeners, the idea of a city-state is you have a metropolis, you have a surrounding set of territories, there's a sovereignty to it, there's a lot of trade, a lot of languages. Uh, people are bound by customs, perhaps by familial you know, lineage, perhaps it's by common interest, whether it's they're sharing resources from the territory around there, or they just have found their way to be glommed together and therefore have a common interest just in survival and getting along with one another. And that was pretty much before the world got divvied up into nations, which is really only about 400 years ago, um, you know, we had empires and dynasties um, and the city-state was just a very functional, um, perpetual worldwide way to organize humans. So this argument in Forbes said that if we just updated the criteria a little bit, certain places these days might suit that criteria, even if they were still locked inside of a larger sort of federal organization. And so I started 
kicking around this theory that Los Angeles was something like that because living in Los Angeles, which is very different from visiting Los Angeles, uh, which I hadn't known until I started living there, um, <laughs> which I realized is kind of a jerk thing to say, but the truth is living there is a very different experience. And there is a sense that you are separate from the country, not in the way that, you know, you're in Alaska and you refer to the rest of the country as the lower 48 uh, or in Hawaii, and it's just not uh, so close by. But in LA, you can sort of feel like you are in the middle of everything and in the middle of nowhere all at the same time. Um, and so I was playing around with the city state idea for about a year and Sean, we eventually reached a point where I think he had enough confidence. I'm not sure how much enough is to be like, okay, here's a book advance. It should, you know, this will get you through a couple months of reporting. Um, and so that's what I did and just went out and started just knocking on doors and making a lot of phone calls and a lot of emails and a lot of just reaching out to everybody I could talk to for various reasons. Uh, and then I needed to keep paying the bills. So what I'm lucky enough to do is two or three times a year, I write a feature for GQ. Um, they usually take about six months to develop. I'm just sort of a very slow person when it comes to that kind of stuff. Um, but I convinced my editors at GQ to be able to take reporting and research that I had been building along the way for the book and just to sort of say like, hey, I've done all this work on this topic. Would you be interested in a story on this topic? And then I would take some of the reporting and the research I'd done and just take a break from the book for a little bit and fashion it into an article and then return to the book and keep going. And I was able to do that three or four times. So that's what, because the book took about four or five years uh, oh, to wow. complete. Wow. Also, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate. It might be closer to three or four, something like that, but it, it wasn't overnight. Uh, and so the magazine articles just really um, helped me not just pay the bills, but refine my thinking and figure out what I was after. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the organization of it, because you jump from idea to idea in a very um, satisfying way. And I guess my per my personal um, experience with Los Angeles, I never really saw the full picture. I always, if it's, if it's a mosaic, I only saw tiles. I never saw the full thing. But I feel like in this, you, you do get to stand back and see the mosaic, but you, these are definitely tiles. And I'm curious, about the organizing principle for you. Well, that's, that's a really nice metaphor and I'm gonna steal it from now on, Christopher, <laughs> and, and not attribute it to you. Um, <laughs> listeners, you heard it here first. The cruelest uh, cut. <laughs> well, to talk about the structure for a second, I because this is such a wonderful book podcast that I am also a regular listener of, I know that you're, uh, listeners, or some of them at least, are nerds um, and you know intellectuals. So let me be real with you. Truthfully, the structure of the book is entirely stolen, or which is to say, inspired by a book called *The Tractatus* by the British philosopher uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Um, if I said that too fast, let me try it slower. Ludwig Wittgenstein. I'm saying that slowly because I don't think I'm pronouncing it right, but whatever. So he wrote this book and he, I was not a philosophy major. I took two classes in college, but I did have a roommate who was a philosophy major and he had this thing lying around. And I remember even when I was, you know, 19 or 20 being so inspired by it on a structural level, I did see it being a really neat way to go about thinking about ideas because it's very, very clear, even if you have a hard time grasping what he's talking about. So the idea of the tractatus 
was he wanted to write a book that established and explored the relationship between the real world or reality and language and how we use language to understand reality. And so it's a book, I believe it's very slim. Uh, it's about seven chapters long and each chapter. And again, I'm going to be paraphrasing here. So any philosophy majors in the podcast, <laughs> um, blame Christopher for editing this wrong. Cause I had it perfectly. <laughs> uh, so the idea is that each chapter starts off with a simple formulation, a, uh, an idea about the world and it will state it pretty clearly and it will just be numbered 1.0. Um, and then he'll do a number 1.1. And number 1.1 will be a statement or perhaps a paragraph that expands on the idea in 1.0. The idea being if that we can rely on 1.0 to be true, then 1.1 can develop that truth. Uh, and this continues through the um, chapter. So it, the idea is almost like you're unpacking a logical argument at the same time as leaving room for ideas to have air between them. So it's not really fragmentary, it's not department of speculation, but it is more that you're gonna give yourself some breathing room and let the ideas um, sit for all their worth. Um, and so in writing the book, I took that because there were so many pieces of Los Angeles that I wanted to include in this book. And I had a very deliberate structure and it just took a really long time to reach the final form. You know, I was printing out reams of paper and I would sort it on the living room floor and then resort it. And I would say, okay, well, this story from an interview that I did with someone about an amateur firefighter that belongs in this chapter that has themes dealing with natural disaster, but it actually might belong better in this chapter that deals more with self-help and self-belief. And so I was trying to sort of sort things because each chapter, so my book is also seven chapters, the idea was to sort of have it go both very deep and very shallow uh, frequently, very wide and very narrow, and to keep assembling these different stories and voices so that each chapter would have sort of a resounding effect as I'm building to an argument. Um, yes. Sorry, I think I went off track there a little bit. Uh, no, again, I, think... <laughs> I mean, it's it's Los Angeles. It's just this, it's, it's this beast. It's so huge. Um, and it's something that I was also noticing while I was reading is, especially compared to the Paris book, there just seems to be like, there's a lot of emotion here. There's, I, I was, I was amazed at how much you were really connecting and, and um, wrestling with your emotional relation to the city. Um, it, is that a product of, of Los Angeles? Like, did that happen as you were self-actualizing out there? <laughs> Christopher, go to hell. Uh, no, but listen, we're coming out of a pandemic. We can talk about real things. I it is truthfully, uh, it is, I think it's a, a very smart observation. And I don't think anyone else has brought that up with me in these interviews I'm doing. Um, truthfully, it is a product of being older and being a little bit smarter um, and being certainly more emotionally aware and um, sort of honest about things and willing to be honest on the page. You know, I think my personal journey as a writer, if I go back and read my own work, which I really is, have a hard time doing because it's like every sentence could be better. Um, but when I do, hopefully I'm getting better as I get older. And part of that um, process is getting better at, understanding things and better at listening to both other people and myself and not being 
so um, I don't know, brashy with going uh, for things before I really sort of felt them through and thought them through. So I think if, if that's there in the book, I'm glad for it because it's certainly something, you know, that I would want in my uh, private life. So hopefully it's coming out in the art also. It was really cool and surprising to experience so much of you. I think because there is, when you read a book about a city, particularly one that is trying to make big arguments about that city, so often the writer is sort of sublimating themselves. Even even like E.B. White's Here is New York, like there is a sense that the thing is bigger than you. And I really, it's maybe the first time that I've ever felt like I could start to understand Los Angeles. Let me see if I can add a couple more qualifiers there. But the, <laughs> the way that, you know, I, so much of the book, I was like, oh, I'm reading this guy I know and admire talk about the city in a very personal way. And I think, you know, your point about the pandemic of it all too, hit home and the ways in which you were able to weave some of those things in about volunteering at Dodger Stadium, like it made the city seem present and real to me in a way I don't know that I've ever seen another city book do. Well, that's terrific. Um, I, I'm glad to hear that. It interestingly was one um, issue that we really talked about, me and Sean, me and my partner, Rachel, me and my agent, PJ, was how much of me was going to be in the book. You know, this is not a memoir. I never set out to write it as a memoir. Um, at the same time, it felt similar to some of the journalism that I do. Someone asked me like what my stories are like at GQ. And one of my editors was in this conversation. He's like, oh, we like to put Rosecrans in situations where people around him really, really believe in something. And he's open-minded enough to just sort of tolerate that for a while. <laughs> uh, and so that could be an adult summer camp. That could be, you know, hunters in Montana. That could be, you know, whatever various things I've done for GQ. But it, I do feel um, like that sort of curiosity, if I have any talents, hopefully that's, you know, that, that is uh, one of them that I bring a pretty open mind and open heart to things. And I wanted people to be able to sort of see Los Angeles the way that I was seeing it as I went about it, because, um, you know, there's a guy in the book named Sam Sweet, who's an amateur historian. And he has a quote in one of my interviews uh, talking about how Los Angeles doesn't give you much if you don't ask for it, if you don't put yourself out there. Um, I think I made a joke about this the other day in the newspaper, but it's not a hostess at a restaurant, you know, like, and which is which is tough because everyone wants to be asked to the prom, right? No one wants to have to be the one doing the asking. I'm sure there's a guy named Dirk. He does. But besides Dirk, everyone wants to be asked to the prom. Uh, but Los Angeles if Los Angeles is the prom, I'm not sure if this metaphor is going to work, but when, <laughs> when you really put yourself into it, when you really start digging into it and putting yourself out there and meeting people and exploring other neighborhoods and other communities, there's a huge richness to greater Los Angeles because it just goes on forever. But there is a sort of tolerance. There is an open-mindedness. There is an open-endedness, you know, whether it's in conversation with people, whether it is in the sense of experiences uh, that I haven't really found in other places. New York is far more conservative, you know, um, 
Boston is incredibly conservative or Philadelphia or Chicago. And then other cities, you know, sometimes begin to feel a little bit more provincial. And this is not a knock on any of those other cities, you know, but, uh, and I talk about this in the book, Los Angeles doesn't function like those cities. In fact, because Los Angeles is not really a city itself. You know, it is, there is the city of Los Angeles, but there's much more than that is the county of Los Angeles. And much larger than that is greater Los Angeles, which encompasses five counties and all these communities. At the same time, as you drive around, it can be very difficult to detect, at least visually, that you've left any of them. You know, it just rolls and rolls. And so there was this physicist that I spent a day with comparing it. He thought the city-state metaphor was pretty accurate, but he actually preferred thinking of it as the internet, that the internet mm. um, or the web at least um, is much like Los Angeles in terms of this spider web of connections and services and communities and languages. At the same time, it can be very shallow and also very deep and people can plunge through it and there's nothing there to save them. And other people can soar through it and make billions of dollars completely undetected. Uh, and the way that sort of social media is that scroll that never ends. He was saying, you know, if you drive down one of the big avenues um, in Los Angeles, it's just never ending. It's just strip mall and strip mall and strip mall. And by the way, strip malls in Los Angeles are amazing. You know, like the best sushi is next to the worst dry cleaner. Um, but that, <laughs> that might be Christopher's childhood. I don't want to bring up any traumatic experiences. No, I I, I wasn't traumatized by my, I, I had a great childhood and, and- I lived 18 years in Los Angeles area and, and liked it. Um, but I was, I never, I never felt connected to it because of these things that you're saying, because like, you know, the little tiny fiefdoms, I started thinking of it mid, in like medieval terms, especially after the, um, the five Kings yeah. <laughs> that, that were like yeah. run the various count. Like I, I was just thinking like, these are the, um, these are like little, little feudal lords that just like control their area with these iron fists. Um, and I just never, I never felt connected to it. And like driving between them, you really do have these weird like shocks of like, I was five minutes ago, like at the beach near like Venice seeing like these weird canals. And now I'm in, where am I? You know, like it's, it just seems like it's very. Um, After five minutes, you're still in Venice. But yeah, <laughs> well, you're saying. there's no, it's a special time where there's no traffic. Um, <laughs> It's four in the morning, <laughs> but you know what, Christopher, I was, um, there's a, so I did a lot of interviews and a lot of research that didn't get in the book that just, it didn't, in the end, it didn't fit for any reason. And one of the interviews was with the novelist, Charles Yu, uh, who recently won the national book award for interior Chinatown, marvelous, fantastic, you know, writer of all kinds of things. Anyway, Charlie and I have gotten to know each other over the years and I was interviewing him. And so Charlie, uh, grew up on the West side over, I guess in Sawtell, but near uh, a place called Tito's Tacos, because that's the only landmark near him. He just lived in this sort of block just off the highway. And he was telling me about it. He's like, yeah, I grew up thinking I lived nowhere. Like I was from literally nowhere. And I was, you know, really struck by that. Cause I was like, dude, I'm from nowhere. You know, like <laughs> I'm from the suburbs of Connecticut. You're from Los Angeles. And he's like, nope, you're wrong. I was like, okay, Charlie, you, you get it. So you brought us another city book. Yes, you did. I know. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> was that too on the nose? I don't know. No, no. it was it was a fantastic reading experience. Um, it's Orhan Pamuk's uh, Istanbul, Memories and the City. And I'd love to hear what made you recommend it to us. Well, so... 
I really love this book. And this is a strong endorsement for any listeners who are looking for a great, very personal book about a great city. Um, so Pamuk is from Istanbul, and the book is very much informed by that. His family owned this sort of uh, set of apartments, an apartment building, maybe more than one. Uh, he born and raised, grew up there. And this book is a book about different facets of Istanbul, but very much told through his experience growing up. And the reason I recommend it today is because no one's really asked me about this, but when I was trying to figure out how I was going to write this book, because I wasn't, I had so much stuff that I wanted to put in this book, and I didn't know how to put it together. I had that idea of, you know, taking the structure from this random book of philosophy, but I didn't think it was going to hold together. And I needed ways to make it feel like there was connected tissue between, you know, whether it's this woman I'm interviewing who survived a mudslide in a wheelchair to, you know, the growing up story of Octavia Butler, to a Marine who's a firefighter, to people that drink each other's blood. Like, I mean, maybe some of your listeners see the obvious connections. I didn't, you know, <laughs> the fact that they're all It just LA. all sounds like Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's true. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I went looking around and really couldn't find a nonfiction book that, um, that clicked for me that I could really use as inspiration until I found this one. And one other actually, which is I did not, I only got one recommendation for the for the book club, essentially. Uh, the other was called Maximum City. It came out in the early 2000s about uh, Mumbai. Wonderful book. Uh, in any case, Istanbul, Oran Pamuk, um, so personal, so lyrical, uh, so interested in the voices that he grew up hearing, whether it's the writers that he admired or people that were making art and drawings or the way that people in Istanbul, um, you know, take the, because they live in this massive ruin, basically, you know, that Istanbul is so old and has yeah. sort of once formed, you know, so amazingly powerful and then fallen on hard times for so long. And people are taking rubble from like, you know, an old class building and building it into their house. Um, and so that's, for me, the book I wanted to bring it to you guys, because there was so much about it that I thought was really innovative and really interesting. The way that he blends in all those photographs. Um, and there was one thing I was going to bring up that I really found interesting. At one point he talks about, there's a word. Um, give me a second. Actually, you know what? I have the book with me. I'm, I'm sure I marked this page. Give me one second. Yes. So there's a word, and I'm not going to pronounce this correctly because I don't speak Turkish, but it is uh, huzun. H-U-Z-U-N, and each of the U's has two tiny dots above it. And he talks about it being sort of a, a pervading feeling in Istanbul, um, something that is just shared by a lot, a lot of people. And it has to do with a certain melancholy. I think he calls it sort of like a, um, like a, like the black love or the black passion or something like that. Anyway, the idea that there is just a, a feeling in the air, a vibe that all these people from all these different places sort of get a sense of, I feel is pretty true from LA. And I say that because I interviewed so many damn people for this book, but, and I'm not the first person to write about this. Lots of people have and done it really well. But for me, it was, it began with this sense of impermanence in LA. And that's everything from the fact that you have to drive around with an emergency kit in your trunk because a sinkhole or an earthquake might just swallow you whole. Uh, to the sense that your job could just disappear tomorrow and you've got nowhere to go. You see all these people who are homeless literally on every single sidewalk corner and that could be you. 
Um, and a lot of Angelinas, they see that and you develop these strategies to not see that, right? Uh, but it's always right there. And that sense of impermanence, where I go with it in the book and where I sort of finish the book with is it's really about the inequality of, of Los Angeles. And that's, you just can't escape it, you know, unless you are, I mean, the most terrifying people in Los Angeles are not, you know, in Skid Row, they're in Bel Air. Uh -huh. You know, if someone's living hard in Skid Row, they don't have a lot to lose. People in Bel Air have a lot to lose. And when they start to lose it, they are going to go out and get big guns and do bad things with them. Yeah. Uh, for, for my Bel Air listeners right now, sorry, but you know it's true. You know you're. <laughs> Um, anyway, so that's, but that's where I, Istanbul, I just thought it's, it's a beautiful little sort of personal, lyrical, gorgeous book about a city I've never been to, but now really, really want to visit. Yeah, actually, that was my next question is like, I, I actually went back and forth, I actually listened to, to it. And I have a print copy that I was seeing the photos as I was listening to it. And I kept going back and forth, like, I want to visit or he actually sometimes makes a great case for never visiting. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, there's there's this part where he's talking about and sort of making fun of people who walk around to and see the ruins and talk about how beautiful they are and and how like in the poorest neighborhoods, these like two houses leaning against each other, very picturesque, but it's also the sign of like crumbling infrastructure. <laughs> and the people who are living there are going through some of the hardest times in their life, but you're going to take a lovely picture of it. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and I really, that, that really talk about Los Angeles right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I felt like I, that, that resonates for any city. Um, and he was, it seemed like he was almost trying to find the source of Huzun or, or that melancholy and seeing like, is there something in the history of, and then how they sort of don't want to talk about their history because it's horrible. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it, it was a, it was a, I just felt the pervasive melancholy of Istanbul, which is the thing that's really makes you think like, I, it's not like the city of light or, you know, the city that never sleeps it's the city full of melancholy which of isn't i don't know if you would put that on the um on the tourist poster <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting yeah. though the way that reading these two books so close to one another i found myself thinking about specifically that city-state hypothesis and that istanbul w essentially was at one time a city-state but now fast forward hundreds of years after the collapse of several different empires that like, I don't know if we're all lucky enough to live another couple hundred years. I don't mean individually. I do mean the human race. I could see a world in which Los Angeles could look something like that. Like this idea of we had this great grandeur. There are still these beautiful things here, but people keep coming here for a reason. And you know, a reason that is more, difficult to define than like everybody keeps fucking getting drawn to New York, you know, like that, that's its own thing in the same way. Like people are drawn to London or Los Angeles or Tokyo cities like Istanbul and Los Angeles. It feels more like there's, I think Rosecrans, you've said it a couple of times. Like there's a vibe. There's still room in Los Angeles to get to disappear, you know? Um, mm. And in my personal experience, I've known people who use New Orleans that way, for example, but that often has a lot more to do with substance abuse. <laughs> but in Los Angeles, there is 
still space here. You know, there is um, a sense that you can come here and if where you're coming from didn't have room for you, that you didn't quite, uh, maybe you were a little bit too coarse, maybe your edges hadn't gotten, you know, sort of rubbed off yet. Maybe just the family that you came from was just not the family you were meant to be born into. Um, you know, LA still has room for you here. Um, I think that's pretty true. I think also in terms of other cities, you know, for me, Los Angeles is a lot like Tokyo. It's a lot like London. It's a lot like Berlin. Like it's just sprawling. And that's a very easy cliche to say about Los Angeles, but it doesn't negate the fact that it, we are ever growing. You know, we are ever sort of reaching out by we, I just mean greater LA into areas that you should never build a house in because they're going to burn in the next 15 years. But we are doing that. We are building those houses and we are sticking people there and people are commuting left and right. Um, especially now that, you know, we're sort of getting back to that. But I'll tell you one of the last stories in the book uh, for listeners who haven't read the book, which is all of them. Uh, there is a story where I go out to a place called California City. Um, California City is this very weird, weird place. Uh, wonderful. Uh, about an hour, hour and a half north of Dodger Stadium, where a guy named uh, Nathan Mendelson uh, earlier in the 20th century tried to build the next Los Angeles. He sort of thought that people would keep coming, keep coming to LA and they'd need somewhere to spill over into. And so he went out and got the money and raised the money to build this city. And he did it in part um, to sort of realize a dream about a utopia. Now, Southern California, other parts of California are not sort of strangers to people with utopian dreams showing up and trying to build stuff. Uh, and this guy went out and the, one of the first things they did was they just cut all these roads into the desert, you know, and they're like named after great, you know, American universities. So it's like Harvard Avenue and then take a left on Stanford and then they'll oh, look at this Princeton. And there's all these cul-de-sacs, but houses were never built. And then the community collapsed. And now there's about, I don't know, 20, 30,000 people living out there. They work at a borax mine or a nearby prison, but all those roads are still out carved into the desert. So if you look at a Google map of it from the satellite imagery, it's like this very bizarre tattoo, you know, on this massive piece of property. And you can go out there and drive the roads and see it. And that's sort of like, if Los Angeles were to crash and burn, you know, it might look a lot more like that than it would like some sort of dystopian, you know, fantasy. Hmm. You explored Paris and you explored Los Angeles. And like we've, of course, now visited Istanbul um, with in the book. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, did you see connections between Paris and Los Angeles? Or do you just like they're just so different, so separate huh. that you can't make any? They, I think there are similarities. Um, there's Okay, and I'll, I even, I'll let someone else do the talking for me. In the book, I interviewed a guy who's a city planner uh, from East LA, and he grew up in East LA and then went to MIT and then joined the army and he was in Paris. And he made the point, and he did his whole thesis about it and his work today, that the Parisian street cafe culture, the idea of being in Montparnasse or being on the Boulevard Saint-Germain or these days, you know, I don't know, in the Marais next to an APC store on your iPhone, um, that that cafe culture that people love about Paris, including Parisians, um, is very similar to Latino neighborhoods, Latinx neighborhoods in Los Angeles, whether it's in East LA or Boyle Heights, uh, all these neighborhoods where rather than 
let's say the more typical Anglo way of living, the wider way of living, where we do all of our recreation in the backyard behind the fences, away from the prying eyes of others, is that there is um, some sense of, this is his argument, but some sense of rebuilding the plaza culture of Mexico and Central and South America. The idea of having your social life out in the front yard, on the front porch, in the driveway, on the sidewalk, and there's a social cohesion. There's a value of that human interaction where people are going down the sidewalk and they're in each other's business and they're seeing people go about their lives. That for him was one of the closest replicas he could find of Parisian cafe culture. You know, that idea that you're gonna run into people that you meet and you're gonna overhear something that's gonna turn you on or make you angry, or you're just gonna bump into a stranger and just really have the hots for them. Um, that that was his little piece of Paris, but he found it, you know, growing up in Los Angeles. Um, as for, aside from that, I'm not sure about many other comparisons. I once did a story for the morning news uh, around the time that the Paris book came out where I visited for two weeks, 20, well, there are approximately 24, 25 towns in America called Paris. Uh, and so for two weeks, I went to five of them. Well, I went to four plus sort of an add-on. I went to Paris, Maine, Paris, Kentucky, Paris, Texas, Paris, Idaho. And then I spent 24 hours without sleeping in the Paris Casino and Resort in Las Vegas. And <laughs> all of these places, I walked around with a clipboard and I would go up to people and ask them to fill out a form that I'd come up with, which was asking questions about French-US relations. Because at the time, this was like, you know, the George Bush years and we had freedom fries. There was a great disagreement about the United States invasion of Iraq. Um, anyway, bad times for US-French relations. So I went to the Parises of America and I was in Paris, Idaho. Paris, Idaho is a small town, uh, a lot of working cowboys. Um, if I remember correctly, there was one motel where I was staying and there was one bar and it was in the motel. And I was in the, actually there was another bar, but I, it was closed. Anyway, so there was this bar and I'm sitting there and it's me and like four working cowboys at the bar. And thank goodness the television is on and there's a Duke Carolina basketball game going. And one of the cowboys is literally, as soon as I like walk, sit down and order a beer, he's like, hey, Duke of Carolina. My wife went to UNC, her parents, my father-in-law teaches at UNC. My mother-in-law used to work at UNC. You know, her grandfather wouldn't let you say the words Mike Krzyzewski at the dinner table. Like it was, <laughs> I believe it's pretty clear. Um, and so I explained I was a Carolina fan, which was terrific because all the Carolina, all the Cowboys hated Duke. So I'm in a good place. And they made me drink, made me, you know, they twisted my arm, uh, something like, you know, six beers in, in 50 minutes. Um, and at that point I got pretty loose lipped. And so I said to one of the guys, I was like, because I'd noticed them, some of them being a little recreational uh, at moments of breaks during the game. Uh, one went off to the bathroom with another and they came back and they were just a lot more excited. Uh, and so I said to one of the guys, I was like, you know what cowboys in Idaho have in common with people in Paris? And he's like, no, what? I said, tight jeans and cocaine. And he thought that was the thing he'd ever heard. Uh, and he turned to his buddy and he was like, you hear that? We're fashionable. We're fashionistas or something like that. Anyway, I was a hit in Paris, Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> One hour. I love that. Well, I, I so enjoyed um, that experience and it was my first uh, Pamuk book. I, I want to read more. You know, My Name is Red and The Museum of Innocence are two books that are in my current library and I've gone on read 
and I still didn't read those, but I bought a different book <laughs> by him to read. I think that's funny. Um, and, and yeah, I, I'm so glad that I finally got to read, you know, one of our living greats. So thank Nobel you Nobel laureates. Nobel yeah. laureate. I'd also recommend Snow. Snow is my personal favorite of the fictions, but uh, Name is Red is also fabulous. But happy to introduce you, Christopher. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Well, speaking of enjoying, now we should talk about recommendations. Yeah, because put that an egg is in. the next part in our show. Yeah, put, <laughs> just drop an egg in of anything. You, the book you're enjoying, right in there. Yeah, people used to put a bird on it. No, put an egg in it. <laughs> put an egg in it. That's what Gwyneth Paltrow recommends this week on Gluten. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Drew, do you want to recommend something? Sure. I'm going to do two books. One is uh, inspired by just now this sort of like, I've heard a lot of good things about these books and I'm coming late to the party and it turns out they're great. I finally picked up Tsitsin Lu's The Three-Body Problem. Fucking great. Just oh. an absolutely killer. So it's got a little blurb, blurb from former president Barack Obama on the cover calling it like wildly imaginative or something. And I was like, God damn it. He's right. This book is great. <laughs> All these people have been telling me this book's great. It's. I still haven't read it. I've heard that book is great from so many people. And now I'm just like, okay, fine, fine, Drew. Fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the worst thing is that I finished, I only bought that book. Cause I was like, all right, I don't want to buy the whole trilogy just in case. And I finished the three body problem and I was like, well, got in the car and drove to the Golden Notebook, my local bookstore. And I was like, hi, do you have a copy of The Dark Forest? Because I just finished. And he was like, weren't you in here two days ago and you bought the three body problem? And I was like, yes, I was. And he was like, cool, we'll have Death's End for you by the end of the week. And I was like, ah, <laughs> thanks See, so much, is... local bookstore. Mm, I love it. Um, but my other recommendation is my all-time favorite city novel which is China Mieville's Perdido Street Station, uh, which I reread right before I read everything now, again, for, for writing research. And it's uh, so wildly imaginative, and I have truly... There are uh, tons of great fantasy cities. There's Jeff Vandermeer's Ambergris and Terry Pratchett's Ankh-Morpork. Nobody has ever made a city that feels so grubbly, dirtily, viscerally real as Mieville's New Corbuzon. Um, it's such a doorstopper, but like you fly through it and I just, I loved getting to go back to it. Um, and it, it made me, I don't know, excited for him to write fiction again someday when he's done writing stories about the October Revolution. <laughs> Rosecrans, what do you recommend? Uh, I recommend laughing about the October Revolution. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> go down well. Um, I recommend, I have two recommendations and they're woven together. My first recommendation is if you have been able to get vaccinated and you have a local bookstore in your town or your city nearby and you have not yet done that thing that you used to do, which is basically you haven't done what I used to do, which is go into a bookstore and just walk up to one of the wonderful employees and be like, hi, can you recommend me a book based on three random criteria of what I'm interested <laughs> in today? 
and then they are able to do it, that experience is fabulous. So I got to do that. My We have wonderful bookstores in Los Angeles. We have Isawan, we have Romans, we have Book Soup. Uh, but the one near me is called Skylight Books. And I walked in the other day. I didn't need to wear a mask. I went up to someone, I was like, hi, can you recommend? And they were like, oh, you should talk to Mike. So I met a guy named Mike. So this, this one going out to Mike. So I recommend, first recommendation, find someone like Mike and go up to Mike and say, hey, do you have any books in translation, maybe mid-century, late 20th century, and preferably by a woman? He's like, okay, yeah. So, so find a guy like Mike and then assign some random criteria and you get a terrific recommendation. So my recommendation is a novel that I'm halfway through called Voices in the Evening by Natalia Ginsburg. Uh, Natalia Ginsburg was a sort of mid-century, I believe, Italian novelist. Um, this was brought out by New Directions. Uh, and it's just a fabulous, uh, sort of relatively small story, sort of a post-war masterpiece, Italian villages. They're struggling to sort of come out of uh, fascism. It's about a family and the power and the money. Where's it gone? And it's gossipy and it's tiny and it's a, it's a page turner and it's just terrific. So I really recommend Voices in the Evening by Natalia Ginsburg. And I really recommend going to your local bookstore and having a chat and see where it leads. Awesome. Oh, yeah. All right, Christopher, what do you got? Uh, one of my recommendations is um, very specific, but not at the same time. And it's to go into, to reread one of your absolute favorite books, but have someone read it to you. Um, and Whoa. either a person in your life or an audiobook, which is probably easier. Probably the audiobook is easier. Um, but if you can have someone read to you that you know in your life, that's great too. Yeah, we're getting um, this is starting to get kinky, Christopher. I like <laughs> no, it's not kinky. It's straight down. Christopher's parents in Santa Clarita listen to this, Rosecrans. <laughs> Christopher's parents in Santa Clarita also have their kink. Trust me. <laughs> you'll get there. You'll get so old and emotionally vulnerable like me that you'll just be open to hearing about it. And they will say, finally, Christopher, we can tell you. And then they're gonna. It's gonna get weird. So good luck with that. Um, all right. What were you thinking? <laughs> oh wow. Okay. <laughs> so I was gonna say that I recently um, reread Skippy Dies by Paul Murray. I had oh, it. It was a full cast reading it. Ooh. Um, and it's just. I couldn't believe, I mean, I loved that book. I love it so much when I read it and I, but I only read it the once and rereading it. I was just like, yes, first of all, I was correct in loving this book so much when I first read it. And secondly, it's got even more now I'm more connected to it. I, I see the magic of why I was so connected to it in this second read. And I highly, highly recommend doing this to whatever your favorite, one of your favorite books is, is finding the audiobook and listening to it. And then my other recommendation is uh, not a book at all. It's a snack. Um, it's this company called Nutty Nostalgic. Um, I saw this on your Instagram and I was like, what is this? Already so, interested. Keep going. So they um, they make these sort of they like weird peanut butters um, or spreads. Um, and there, there's a Dunkaroos one that's like layers of like the Dunkaroos cookie and then the cream. And there's that one. 
But the one that I found that was absolutely transcendently amazing was actually based on um, the kudos bar. I don't know if uh, folks- a kudos bar? A kudos bar was a pseudo um, health snack that I think you could get a lot of times at Costco. You could get like 30 of them. Um, and there was one that had mini M&Ms on it and it was a granola bar, mini mm. M&Ms and a little bit of uh, chocolate on the top. And so this spread is layers of um, mini M&Ms, chocolate, and then this brown sugar uh, fluff. It's unreal how good this That's stuff really is. Good. Um, and they they send it to you. You you know I recommend actually getting four or, or getting a couple of them because they also send you a um, this huge spoon to use for it. And it's like you dig down into it with the spoon and just eat it off the spoon. It's unreal how good it is. Uh, I wish I was getting paid. I'm not. But really, uh, I, I, hope just, get, I hope you get 30 of them in the mail. I hope. I wish. Uh, but because I'm obsessed. Um, <laughs> and it's, it is actually better than the kudos bar for folks that remember what those were. Hang on. So there's chunks in the peanut butter, but it's like it's not like chunky peanut butter, which is still more or less spreadable. This is like, is it like a like a Dairy Queen Blizzard level no. of sort of stuff? No, it's much more peanut. It's it's further. It's closer to peanut butter than it is to like a Blizzard. But it's it, like that thing uh, where you can't call oat milk milk. Yes. Okay. But there's no I peanut like butter this, in this one. This this bar slash goo slash spoonable <laughs> treat might have been a character in Annihilation. Is that? Possible? <laughs> yeah. It sounds well, like was it on the wall? And it, what, did it have a higher intelligence than me? Uh, you know, no, I read its journal that it was keeping and it was disassociating the whole time. And that's why it was a Kudos bar originally. And then it came out as a jarred tree. <laughs> you know, um, when, when, I, when I remembered that this portion of the podcast would be done today, I wanted to be the guy who just said something strange. And so I was thinking of coming on and be like, Rosecrans, what do you recommend? And I would just say hot tubbing. And then just not say anything. Uh, the reason being <laughs> a week into when we moved to Los Angeles, it was like the Wednesday after we moved to Los Angeles, I got a text from a friend who said, hey, what are you doing tonight? We're hot tubbing. I was like, first of all, that's a verb. Second of all, okay. You know, I like to say yes to things. Uh, I also always keep swim trunks in my car because I really like swimming. Uh, and so Rachel and I went over and Rachel, I think her, if I can speak for her in this moment, was like, no, no. <laughs> um, and so we arrive at this little get together and our friend is there and his, and his friend whose house it is, who has a quite a large hot tub in his backyard is standing there in the driveway and everyone's saying hello to each other. And he sees me carrying my swim trunks and he turns to Rachel and he's like, Hey, you need a bathing suit? And she's like, no, I'm good. And he's like, no, no, hold on. And he goes back into his basement this is a nice house. And this person has made quite a bit of money in Hollywood. Uh, and he comes back out with a dive bag, you know, the kind you would haul around four pairs of fins and some masks when you're in the Caribbean, you know, hunting sharks. But instead, he unzips it. and It's just pieces of bikinis, tops and bottoms. And he's like, yeah, you know, girls just leave these over here all the time. And I was thinking, 
you are the only person I've ever met who keeps a bag of gonorrhea in the basement. <laughs> and I thought, maybe lots of people in Los Angeles keep bags of gonorrhea in their basement. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm not into hot tubbing, but that I, I was going to try it to see if, you know, how, how, how it would go. I, I, think, <laughs> I, I think I'll try it in the next life. <laughs> So an almost anti-recommendation, which, you know, that's, yeah, <laughs> yeah I like okay. that. works. <laughs> <laughs> With that endorsement ringing in our ears, um, I just want to say thank you. So everything now, Lessons from the City State of Los Angeles. Um, it's, it's a great book. It made me think about moving back to Los Angeles um, and oh. decide not to. But I really, <laughs> but I really, I really enjoyed reading it, and and I am excited to go visit my parents again with these um, words in my ears. So thank you so much for this book. I think people are going to really enjoy it, and I'm I'm so glad that you could come on and and talk about it with us. Yeah, well, you know, you, you are welcome. I can't wait to hear what those words are going to be from your parents when you go to visit them. And- <laughs> learn new things Christopher but yeah, seriously uh, you know the way I've thought about this book sometimes is that it's a book for people who love Los Angeles it's a book for people who hate Los Angeles and I think it's a book for people in between too awesome it's great and it was so, it was so nice to see your face yeah it really was right, this is my zoom face I look much I look much better or worse in person I don't know <laughs> I have the beauty filter turned on so that's why I look good um, if I if I do it all, and to the folks at home, you know, first of all, one, go buy everything now. Lessons from a city state, lessons from the city state of Los Angeles. Two, please go and rate us on iTunes. Give us five stars and write us something nice. It means the world to me and to us. And also, please go to our Patreon.com/smdb. Oh, I was trying to do it with you. And give us money, because we like that too. We'll do more things in unison if you do. <laughs> or you can pay us not to. Either it's way. Okay. Hot tubs aren't built for free, folks. You know? <laughs>